What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! What up, what up, Meepsters? I'm Ryan Rainbro, and this is Meep Meep, the podcast where we explore albums released on Roadrunner Records. And on this episode, we're celebrating and discussing the 25th anniversary of one of the greatest albums of all time. Not just released by Roadrunner, not just released by Fear Factory, but released in the history of sound, and that is Obsolete by Fear Factory... which came out on July 28th, 1998. And whatever day you're listening to this right now is at least 25 years after that. And we're talking to Burton Christopher Bell, known for short as Burton C. Bell. I don't know what the C stands for. And we're going to be talking to him all about making this album, some incredible trivia that you didn't know about certain songs on this record, the lead-in to it, the aftermath of it. And also we had a special cameo by Madchild of the hip-hop group Swollen Members that I used to listen to when I was a, a wee preteen. I would go up to Grandma's house, all right? She didn't have cable. She had two channels, one UPN, so I could watch SmackDown, which I believe came on on Friday nights back then. Comes on Friday nights again. In between then, it came on Thursdays. Also... For whatever reason, even though she lived in the southeastern United States, I also was able to watch Much Music, a Canadian music channel, which had swollen members, fuel-injected video playing on a loop, okay? With what other videos? Cardinal Official, Snow, the guy that did Informer, he had a new song at this time. It was called Joke Thing. And it was a joke thing to have to watch and listen to this cornball pretend he's Jamaican. But the point is, Mad Child of Swollen Members participated in the creation of Obsolete by Fear Factory. Did you know that? Maybe you did. If you didn't before, you know it now. If you knew it before, you're going to know more now. We start our story off at the heels of Demanufacture, which of course there is an episode of the show on with Fear Factory guitarist Dino Cazares. And electronics slash producer slash mixer Reese Fulber, which you can check out now and you can check out later. But going into Obsolete, Fear Factory was kind of a new band. We had a new bass player, Christian Old Wolvers. And we had Reese Fulber fully integrated, not only into the band, but also in the producer role for Obsolete. We started working with Reese with keyboards, essentially, 
and uh, then it became uh, more of an integral part of the mixing process and the, getting the sounds and the and just really just like moving towards the sound that we were looking for. He never really he never wanted to be a, a full member. Um, he was like the silent fifth member. His his loyalties were to Frontline Assembly, also to uh, Delirium, and we respected that. He played. He actually played live with us a couple times at a festival or two, and uh, one was the Dynamo. That was fun. But uh, Reese was uh, definitely yeah integral part of the band at that point. He started. He mixed and pro- he produced the uh, Obsolete record uh, with Greg Reilly mixing, and Greg Reilly was also co-producing as well. So it's uh that was a great time, man. And so with, you know, the records beforehand, Colin Richardson was the producer. Now you have Reese, who essentially was like uh, the mixer on the manufacturer. And I know he added the electronic parts as well, but he's full on production role. But like you said, he's like kind of in the band, too, even though he's not in the band. So right. what was that dynamic like working with somebody who's more, um, I want to say, more your friend than like your not your boss, but I don't know. I see a producer as like this, like adult that comes in the room and is like, no, we need to do things this way. Whereas this is like a, someone. It was more, it was more of like, um, he was a sounding board a lot. He was, you know, he would offer a different, uh, inspiration or a different, uh, perspective about what we were doing. The growth between the growth from sold new machine to demanufactured obsolete is exactly that. It was a growth of the band of what we were doing through experimentation, through trying to achieve the best sounds possible. The soul in the machine, for instance, I call that the primordial state of fear factory. And it was where we were just like, okay, three guys getting together and we're just trying to create music and we're just throwing all different elements into the mix and uh, just seeing what we could make stick and just what we we're writing really. And then, um, it wasn't until demanufacture and that we had under our belt a few tours right so at that point we were touring with a lot of hardcore and some death metal hardcore death metal bands doing a lot of festivals but uh the tour with the hardcore bands was really inspirational for me personally in particular opening up for uh biohazard and sick of it all luke holler is an amazing Frontman, incredible vocalist, but an incredible frontman to begin with. And watching Luke Holler sick of it all was very inspirational. And um, you know, uh, and watching hardcore bands play and interact with their audiences was also like a learning a lot. So we're not just me, just everyone else in the band was learning how to be not just in a band, but a performing band, a performance band. And writing songs that can we can play live, but are moving forward. And it was just a real a lot of experimentation going on. It was really awesome. So, and then you know, the obsolete. Obviously, we had more tours. Uh, Demanufactured made quite a mark when it came out, and so we had a lot to prove, honestly. And um, Roadrunner was very uh, positive and very um, yeah, just very positive of about our future and so they were putting a lot towards it and they're putting a lot into the development of fear factory at that point and so they had uh you know they put all their efforts at that point into it it was really amazing 
we had a lot of potential uh, while we were writing demanufacture, recording demanufacture. We actually met with Jimmy Eovine at Interscope Records. Um, there was a A&R guy, Ray Santa Maria, who uh, was he befriended us because he loved us. And he got us, he wanted to sign us to Interscope prior to demanufacture. And um, Roadrunner just held us tight and didn't let us go. Yeah, so it was uh, one of those things that there was a lot of hope <laughs> and a lot of uh, you know, push towards this band to make us, you know, excel us even further. So it was, uh, it was a lot going on. Do you think going back to you talking about touring with these hardcore bands and kind of seeing them and their more performance and energy based uh, demonstrations, do you think that that helped move obsolete also even more towards a, you know, it's still got the industrial feel to it, but it has like more organic instruments and, and sounds to it. Absolutely. Um, what we did with demanufacture, you know, it was, it was very, it's a very precise sounding album. It was really good. Uh, still had hardcore elements to it. Still had, uh, just really like aggressive sound, but it was a very sound of it was just a very aggressive and just very cold and calculated, really. And we wanted to warm it up. And with Christian coming into the band, Christian came in while we were still touring on Soul New Machine. So he came in for the tour that we did with opening up for Sepultura on um, Chaos AD tour, and it was. Fear Factory, Clutch, Fudge Tunnel, and Sepultura. That tour was also unbelievably, incredibly fun and badass. And, you know, watching, just watching Clutch every day and Fudge Tunnel. I was already a fan of Fudge Tunnel and I was already a fan of Clutch. At that point, Sepultura was just on fire. Incredible record to t- watch them tour on. We are learning a lot. We, we had two songs done for Demanufacture at that point. So we had Piss Christ written, and we had another one called Demanufacture. We had Demanufacture written. We were playing those live as a you know as a little sneak peek on, in our set. And they were very raw at that point, no keyboards, whatever. But uh, it was a lot of fun. So Christian started finding his footing during that time, uh, finding his place in the album and the band. And so when Obsolete finally came around, he had written parts. He had it. He had an an idea uh, and a concept of what he wanted the bass to sound like. And so it was that that really made um, help Obsolete sound very deep and organic. And which Team Manufacturer had bass, but it was a lot of it was following the guitar, whereas. Christian was, you know, being a bass player. That was the first time we've actually had a bass player. Yeah, you can uh, definitely tell that the bass is a significant ingredient to Obsolete, whereas it has different tones. I mean, you know, of course, there's the obvious of the upright bass on Edge Crusher, or there's a, that deep distorted bass on Descent that, you know, yeah. really stands out. So those are two moments just right off the top of my head that uh, that the bass is a a factor, whereas before, like you said, you didn't really think about it it's just kind of following along with the guitar you think of the riffs you think of the precise drumming the vocals now right. you have an extra element that people can kind of identify with right exactly and it was uh yeah he 
Christian actually was studying bass. He thought we we recorded in Vancouver and he befriended a person who worked at a music store in Vancouver who was a bass player. So he got a lot of um, almost like a tutorial on the bass. And that's when he actually got his first Fender Jazzmaster. And that's the bass mostly used on the record where before it wasn't really more of an afterthought, but it was, uh, you know, he really studied and really put all of his efforts into being a bass player. It was, stand-up bass was really fun. That was incredible. The purest non-conformist jaded subhuman terrorist from flesh to steel or blood to blade I fight Not so cool on tour because it took up half the, <laughs> half, the, half the space in the truck or the bins or whatever. It was like it was like gigantic flight case. Wait, you would take the upright bass on tour to just play the one song? Yes, we did. Okay, very cool. <laughs> Not really, but <laughs> it was cool. But um, yeah, for one song, it was it was a lot. Yeah, I don't remember that. I definitely saw what was it, Static X, Dope, Fear Factory, and I don't, I, I, I believe you, but I don't remember the the upright bass coming out. No, it wasn't on all the tours. It's just one tour, I think. Okay. Well, you know, of course, Obsolete's got this like uh, concept aspect to it and you being the writer of both the lyrics and just kind of the uh, a writer in general you got the well uh, thank you <laughs> um <laughs> what came first did you have this story written out and you were like oh this would be awesome if we made an album out of these different parts of the story or you had the songs and you you know like how did that what was the well, that story it all came or organically honestly the so i didn't have the story at first so we wrote, you know, I was writing lyrics and I was just coming up with concepts of each song and, you know, writing lyrics of, you know, what I do, just, you know, taking what I see in the world at the time and just moving it forward, um, projecting it into another time. And just uh, as, as sci-fi writers do, they write about what they see, but they project. And it wasn't until the album was completely recorded and we had a song listing of the how of the arrangement of how it's going to be appear on the album so i create with that song listing i created an outline and with that outline i created a story of okay this is what's happening in this record and this is a storyline i did the same thing for demanufacture actually but it was more of a synopsis uh roadrunner asked me at the time when Demanufacture was coming out to, you know, oh, we need descriptions of, you know, explain what each song means. Instead of explaining what each song meant, I just wrote a little paragraph, kind of like a little story for each one of like, this is the story of this, this, this. And that went out to press, but no one ever talked about it, which was strange. But it was, uh, I, I wanted to do it right on obsolete. So I used it as an outline and wrote the story and it just, just everything worked out to me. I wrote it on, it took me a couple of weeks, maybe two or three weeks to write it completely. Cause I was just using the lyrics as part of the storyline and just interjecting my line into it to propel it further, just to finish the story. And I, <laughs> I wrote it on a Smith Corona typewriter. <laughs> oh, wow. You typed it out old school. You're like a real writer. 
Yeah, I typed it out old school. It was before I had a computer. That was, what, 98. So I, I didn't get my first computer until 2000, which was Digimortal. But um, the uh, yeah, that's how I wrote it. So I still have those papers. Oh, that's incredible. I have I have saved everything I have ever written. I have an incredible collection. I find that even more impressive. I'm not sure why, but I do that you wrote the, the story afterwards because the music would have already existed. So you're kind of I don't want to say shoehorning, but you're finding ways to fit that into the music. And I think that would be more difficult than writing it out first and then the band being like, OK, we're going to write music that fits that mood. Actually, shoehorn is an interesting concept, but it's uh, for me, it just seemed to work. You know, I had once I came up with the concept of what this whole thing was about, once using the outline, it took, you know, I didn't obviously I didn't think of it overnight. It took a little bit of time, but once I figured out the concept, just everything clicked and it just came, it just like poured out of me and literally just like, like flowed. And the inspiration I was feeling just was so driving. It just felt so great. I just couldn't stop writing. I would, I would stay up all night long just writing. And um, I'd go back to it in the day. And it's like, okay, here's it. here, And just begin again. It's like, here we are. And just, I kept going and going. And I learned, I was editing it myself and learning how to do that. And just, it was an incredibly, really great learning experience for me. And a great, just a great time. So there's got to be an extended version of the story that exists then. If you're writing and writing for weeks, I mean, it's got to be more than just like these 10 or so paragraphs that make it. Um, the oh, there's a lot that got edited out for sure. Because I had to fit it into a you know 12-page, 15-page booklet, something like that. Have you ever thought of trying to make that into a graphic novel like you did with The Industrialist years later? Well, to me, it already is one. It reads like a script. It has visuals by Dave McKeon. It's not your typical graphic novel, but to me, it, that's exactly what it is. And so I didn't, why fuck with it? No, that makes sense. We'll go into the cover then. You know, you got uh, Dave McKeon, who did, of course, Demanufacture also. Did you collaborate with him on what the idea of the album was? And he kind of generated that crazy Absolutely, stuff? absolutely. I developed a working relationship with Dave McKeon during Demanufacture and going back and forth uh, before emails, we were faxing ideas uh, on the phone. Um, I have, I'm very fortunate. I have the ability to describe exactly what I see or want to picture in my head. So I could, when it comes to artists, I can, I can elaborate very well what I need to what I'm picturing or what I can picture. And that way it gives the artist so much uh, material to work with that he just, just, you know, throwing stuff at us all the time. And I was like, no, no, no. And we still have it. I got the facts of this idea that he sketched out, which later became the actual album cover demanufactured. And I was like, fuck, that's it. That's perfect. And I did the same thing. Uh, working with uh, for him with an obsolete scribing, you know, telling him what the lyrics, I would send him the lyrics um, and he would just basically just absorb everything I sent him and communication, more faxing, more phone calls. And uh, it, it took some time, but once 
he came up with that concept. It's like, holy shit, that's pretty incredible. So yeah, working with Dave McCann was fun. We we worked with him. We were working with him on Digimortal, but that's a long story. It never worked <laughs> out. Ba- interband tension. I gotcha. Okay. I love that this futuristic album involves typewriters and fax machines. <laughs> well, you know, you got to use what you could use. And uh, at that point, faxing was futuristic. You know, it was over sending electronic data over landlines. And that was the future at the point. Do you remember what song, you know, you're talking about how with Demanufacture, you guys had already had Piss Christ and Demanufacture and you're playing those live. Do you remember what musically you came up with for this batch of songs for Obsolete? We didn't start writing Obsolete until we were done touring with Demanufacture. And it took us, usually every record came out three years afterwards. So it kind of took us, it took us a year to write and record this album. Uh, we rec- we toured Demanufacture almost from 92 to 94. And yeah, we didn't start recording Demanufacture in 94. So Demanufacture came out in 95, toured 95 and 96. And we started recording Obsolete in the beginning of 98. Like right January 98, we all flew up to Vancouver. I guess we were writing like six months, like a few months before we went up there. And we're still kind of writing when we got into Vancouver, honestly. I was. I didn't have all my lyrics done. Some ideas weren't even so, some ideas weren't concrete. My ideas, at least. Um, for instance, uh, the song Resurrection. I didn't, uh, I had a, a basic idea, but it wasn't, I wasn't feeling it. Reese wasn't feeling it. So while we're I'm recording vocals for Resurrection, we're like, I'm not feeling it. Let's take a break. And me, Reese, and Dino were sitting in the studio, the big, the main room of Mushroom. Actually, we were at Mushroom Studios, and we went to the Armory. And so at Mushroom, I'm sitting at a piano, just trying to like come up with like uh, a melody of some sort, and it was. While we were brainstorming, it finally came to me. It's like, snapped. It's like, I got, I got the fucking idea. Let's go in there. And as I was developing the idea, you know, going through the vocals and delve up with the idea, race like, okay, I hear it now. So it just kept going through it. And Resurrection became one of my favorite songs on the record, honestly. I didn't have lyrics for Edge Crusher. Edge Crusher was, we had the title, I came up with the title by looking at a box, a cardboard box in our studio. And the cardboard box on the corner said Edge Crush 20 pounds. So I was like, huh, that's a good title, Edge Crusher. I'm like, okay. Uh, I had a title. I had some ideas, but not a lot. Um, but uh, having Christian met, he met up with a, he, while we were in Vancouver, he befriended a band, uh, a hip hop group called um, Swollen Members. And he had invited Mad Child uh, down to the studio to help basically helped me out. And uh, we kind of brainstormed, came up with lyrics together. 
That's right, Madchild of Victoria, British Columbia hip-hop group Swollen Members at the time helped Burton write and record the song Edge Crusher, which ended up being one of Fear Factory's biggest songs, one they never stopped playing from the time it was released to present day. And so I was able to catch up with Madchild to discuss that, uh, you know, collaboration, meeting the band, kind of how it all came together. Yeah, so basically, we met the group through Christian. Um, so I, I was in a group called Swollen Members uh, back back then um, from Canada, uh, Vancouver, BC. And uh, we did, we went on to do very well as a sort of underground hip-hop group that, that became uh, sort of mainstream or whatever, I guess you'd call it in Canada. And we had... Uh, we had we had good sort of underground success worldwide. We had a good run as well. So um, we actually met Christian in the beginning of Swollen Members, um, who who was into hip hop, and he actually went by the name of Edge Crusher and played uh, bass on a few few of our first singles of our few of our first twelve inches that we put out through Fat Beat. So that's how the friendship started. Uh, with the group through Christian. And then um, they invited me. Of course, I went and checked out one of their shows when they played it. It might have been Oz Fest or something like that. Um, I can't remember. It was some big festival where I met the guys and we went out and hung out a couple of times. Everybody got along great. This is when the group was Bert, um, Christian, Dino, and Raymond. Um, so, you know, great, great group of guys, bunch of characters, had a good time. And they invited me to the studio when they were recording that song, which I believe was the Armory back then in Vancouver. So there was like two main studios, the Warehouse, which is Brian Adams Studio, and then the Armory is the other like big sort of big A type of studio. So I went and hung out. I went out and hung out there and they were working on the song and they had a eight bar section for a rap thing and I just quickly wrote something up and then sort of laid down scratch vocals of how to say it because obviously with rap you know it's not if you're not a rapper well even if you are a rapper somebody could write lyrics but how you're going to say them is a, is a completely different thing than just reading the words on paper so I did sort of a little rough thing it's just as far as how the timing of the words were supposed to go and then um Bert came in and crushed it and did it in his style and it worked out great. So I was honored to be a part of that project. And um, the guys were cool enough to give me a gold record when it went gold. And yeah, it was dope. Oh, that's sick. Yeah. I didn't even think about that, that you would have uh, gotten the, the accreditation. Was there ever like consideration for you to just do the rap, like for you to be on the song? No, we didn't. Uh, I, I, didn't I don't think it would have made sense to be honest with you. I think, uh, you know, from a listening point of view, it made more sense for Bert to do it. But um, I don't think, I can't remember if it was discussed or not. But I, I think it, you know, it all worked out how it was supposed to work right now. Bad decision, fatal error. Get scars from bars and bomb every terror. We own label, never get dropped. Now the crew combined and we can't be stopped. He, he was almost acting like, he was almost acting like a tutor for me. It's like, how do I... How he, how he approached his vocal style, how he approached his his style of spitting work, and uh, he helped he helped me move and create my own kind of 
version of it. So it was, it was very cool. Um, the other, the other member. You're talking about uh, Zodak, the producer slash DJ? But, uh, he did the scratching on Edge Crusher. So the, we can, we can, we can. So he came in and did the scratching for that. Oh, he's wow. the, the Van Halen record, actually. <laughs> That's crazy. Do you know about Van Halen record? Van Halen won. <laughs> wow. And who's doing that spoken intro right before the song starts? Due to the graphic nature of this program, listener discretion is advised. So that's an old friend of ours that we knew for a long time named Pat Howard, um, who's also, uh, he was Phantasma in Brujaria. But um, he was Pat, Adam Bond. His name is Pat Howard, also named as Adam Bond. He's in a lot of, he was, it was a DJ. It was a DJ at KXLU for a while in LA. He was also uh, in a band with Dave Smalley, hardcore band. Yeah, I think he's like involved or or was involved in like lucha libre wrestling in Mexico. Right? Yes, absolutely. He's big wrestling fan, and uh, so he, yeah, he had the perfect voice for like voiceovers. Like Pat, come and do this, and he just one take done. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Do you remember what were some of the earlier musical songs that you guys had written, though, that where you knew, like, okay, this is, like, going to be the, the vibe of the record? Was Edge Crusher one of them? Um, it was one of them, but we Shock was one of the first songs we wrote. Obviously, because we spent more time on it because it was the first one. And uh, yeah, that's why it became the first album song on the album. Timelessness was an idea, really, more than it was a song. We knew what we wanted to do. So that was more developed in the studio in Vancouver than anywhere else. It was an idea more than it was a song. And that developed into something really cool, too. Smash or Devour was another song that was almost fully developed. And um, I got that title from an anime film that I was watching. And it was uh, some character in the anime film. I was like, wow, that's a cool. And it it was the translation. You can't assume that beings more powerful than man are necessarily wiser. Because it was, you know, it was on the the translated uh, words across the screen. It's like Smash of the Hours. Holy fuck. And do you ever feel like it's borderline irresponsible to have the sickest one-two punch opening of an album with Shock and Edge Crusher? Do you feel like it's just like discouraging the other bands to even attempt to have two songs as sick as that to open up a record? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> you know, if you, we like I said, we had a lot to prove going from demanufactured to obsolete. People were, you know, thought we were like a one-hit wonder or a one-trick pony. It's like, no, there's more. Just hold my beer. (laughs) So I think, you know, you got to come out strong. And that's what Roadrunner wanted because they were putting a lot of assets and a lot of time behind promoting Fear Factory. And uh, they did did so. They even um, flew out Gary Newman for the Cars uh, cover.
when they got wind that we were covering, that we were going to do cars, because we were doing cars in Europe during the demanufacture tour. It's just like a funny thing, because at that point in Europe, I think Heineken was using it for a, a song in a commercial. And so we just started for just fucking around. We started playing just part of the song live. It's just like a fucking round thing. And by the time it came to record, it's like, hey, let's just record it, see how it turns out. And when Rona got wind of that, they're like, okay, well, if you guys want to do this right, let's get Gary Newman. And uh, they flew Gary Newman out to Vancouver. And of course, in Gary's awesomeness and professional ability, he goes in and whips it out in one take. Watching him do that was just an insane. So Roadrunners who reached out to Gary Newman, it was their idea to like have the original artist on the cover. They just Absolutely. knew you were going to do it as like a B-side or something like that? Yeah, they got wind that we were going to do it. And um, so they made that happen. And then while he was there, you were just like, hey, while you're here, you might as well record this intro to the title track. <laughs> yeah, he's like, fuck it. So I had I had these words written down and he perfectly did. It was like, oh, shit, cool. It's weird that that song was like my least favorite song on the record. The, the song Gary obsolete. Newman's, yeah, Gary Newman's part is the best part of that song for me. I just, I, it's it's just a basic song for me. It's it's basic. It's like a hardcore song, and it was. You know, that usually they thought the title track would get top billing, but that, it didn't because it, was, it wasn't, wasn't one of the stronger songs on the record to me, in my opinion. You know. Yeah, I feel like you're talking poorly about one of my best friends when you're saying these words. Uh, hey, man, I, hey, I like the song. It's just not one of my favorites. Well, that song has a part, uh, a, a style that also Edge Crusher has and Shock has that uh, is a lot more prevalent on this record than it was on previous records, and that is that like single note riffing, you know, the obsolete like. Oh, a lot like uh, scapegoat. True. Yeah. No, it wasn't like it didn't exist at all before, for sure. But I felt like this record really leaned into it as far as the the guitar riffing. And, you know, that's kind of like the the style at the time of what we now in retrospect, but did not at that time call new metal, you know, where it's <laughs> kind of single note stuff. I think what, what one song that really highlights that style is Freedom or Fire. I love I love that song. That's one of my favorite songs on the record, too. Yeah, what I love about Freedom or Fire is that the drums are almost the riff and that, you know, the riff kind of follows the drums, but that has that drum intro that it feels like is like the, the foundation of the song. Well, that's how most, pretty much 90% of the songs were written. Okay. By following the drums.
going back to cars though you so you're recording cars obviously it becomes the big hit the record goes gold it's a song that fear factory ends up being known for a lot for a lot of people at right. that time when i know you're recording it as like a b-side you guys are like hey we're having fun heineken's using the commercial we have this fondness of it because of that but when roadrunner's like oh well we're going to release it as a single we're going to get gary newman do you have any apprehension at the time of the perception of the band of the by the public, especially with how the '80s covers are kind of like a, a thing in that time? Well, Roadrunner wasn't going to use it as a single at all. First release of Obsolete Cars was not on it, and it wasn't until it was a radio station in New York City that picked it up, started playing it, and with that popularity growing, Roadrunner was like, "Fuck." we got to re-release this album as a digipack and put cars on it as like a main, like B side single kind of thing. So it was an afterthought, you know, they just thought it was going to be cool to have Gary Newman on the song. To me, it seemed like an afterthought. It blew up. And that's, you know, that song, because of that song, we got a gold record and we got a lot of press and we got a lot of publicity and it really propelled us into a whole nother realm of you know being a band is crazy but so you're saying you're you only were happy about the the benefits of it you had no worries or apprehension about like oh we're gonna be another band that covers the 80s um yeah there was a little bit of apprehension because we had the first video from obsolete was resurrection and, uh, you know, we spent, you know, we made a video for it and it was doing all right, but it, you know, it wasn't until cars this like got picked up and, you know, obviously doing a cover song and it was weird, but at the same time, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. You know, it's, we made a, we made a great version of it. And matter of fact, Gary Newman now still these days when he plays it, he, you know, he not doesn't play our version, but he plays a heavier version of it too, because it's you know he's moving with the times, it's just make it more exciting. But no, it, I think it was uh, it was what had to be done, and that's what it is. So if I had apprehensions, they were definitely dissolved quickly. <laughs> that gold record probably uh, washed away that any uh, any doubt. Yeah, or and uh, you know. We would play it one from time to time, and uh, not a lot, but whenever we played it, people loved it. Well, you mentioned the resurrection video. You know that uh, video is kind of used as like a way to condense the story of the album into a few minutes. And you're also telling me that you're pretty good at like articulating what your vision is for things. Do you feel like that video kind of held up to at that time what you wanted the visual representation to be? Yeah. Um... Again, uh, the director, the director's name was actually Bill Ward, uh, not Black Sabbath, but another Bill Ward. I think that was his name. But um, he later became the guitar, a guitar player for Skinny Puppy. Oh, wow. Full circle. But, uh, but uh, he, 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 pro- he listened to the song and he came up with this great concept. And uh, I, I was like, yeah, it looks good. <laughs> um, and we went to, we were on tour with Slayer and we went to Toronto to do the video and uh, as quickly as we could and did a pretty good job. <laughs> like Bill Ward did Replica. 
William, I think it was William Morris. He did a great job and uh, he, I loved the concept and he had a great plan. So we just went with it. He also did cars and the kid in the cars video was later in a movie called the ring. The scariest so, movie I've ever seen in my life. When that girl comes think, out of the TV. I think it was the ring. He was in a horror film, but uh, he, yeah, it was pretty cool. And, Gary Newman said one of the funniest things ever while we're doing the video and our space is suspended in front of a green screen. He's like, odd songs about cars. What are we doing in space? <laughs> he said, odd. Oh, odd. <laughs> you know, in his, in his very English manner. <laughs> now you're a collaborator in Ascension of the Watchers works with Gary Newman too, right? So are you, does that, uh, he had worked with Gary Newman, but I didn't meet him through Gary Newman. He, oh, okay. I actually met Jace through MySpace. <laughs> Another futuristic reference. <laughs> hey, it was before it was before Facebook. That's right. He was in your top eight, Jace. Um, yeah, it was a you know, we communicated and um I actually I didn't I had no idea how MySpace worked, but uh, he he would message me or whatever he would do. And we talked to each other that way. And then I finally met him on tour, like several years later in the UK. He's like, Hey, I live near there. Can I come and show? So I put him on the guest list and that's where our friendship began. Oh, that's awesome. That's a beautiful story. Uh, I got a lot of them. (laughs) Well, can you please tell me the story of why descent wasn't immediately the idea for the first single for this record? That is a very good question. It should have been the first single. To me, that would have been the one to go with. But I think Roadrunner felt that it wasn't banging enough. Okay. So, I mean, we, we all made our choice of Resurrection and, and the uh, edited version of it. It's like, okay. Um, Descent was cool. That was a cool song. I um, That song... That was one of the first ones we were writing too. And I remember trying to, I was getting inspiration from the oddest places uh, for the chorus. I was listening to a Bone Thugs at Harmony album. And there was this one part in it. I was like, well, that's a cool, it wasn't the lyric. It was like a cool melody he used just briefly. I was like, oh, that's cool. So I just started, like, I tried to emulate it and came out with Descent. It was interesting. It's the first of the month. It's time to get up. Descent. How deep I descend till I reach my end. That is a life-changing <laughs> piece of trivia. Yeah, I think, you know, Descent, immediately when you hear it, it sounds like the hit, right? And I w- got to imagine that when you guys are coming up with that song, that everyone is psyched about it because, like you referred to earlier on, you didn't want all the songs to sound the same. And that one definitely has its own vibe to it that doesn't sound out of place, which is cool, but also sounds totally different because it's mostly the singing, I guess, would be. And it has that melody. Right. Right. And, and, um, it's a great song. It's got a great chorus. It's got a great hook. And it's got great music's awesome. Product, the production's awesome. It, it would have been a great single. It would have made a great video, too. It's one song 
I do plan to play when I get back out on tour. Yeah, that and Resurrection both have those really uh, melodic choruses that I think would sound great and not out of place uh, with what you do now, too. Both Resurrection and Timelessness have that like symphony orchestra sound on on the songs. Are, is it an actual orchestra that came into play or it's just samples? It was a chamber group that Reese hired. Uh, he, he sent the music to arranger, the conductor, and the arra- he wrote the arrangements. And he wrote it all out musically, the tablature. He wrote the out theory? the tablature. No, he wrote out the tablature for the, the strings. And the, it was all strings, pretty much. But it was like a chamber group. And they came in, and it was live strings. And um, I had this uh, vocal melody that I had sung to Reese, and he transcribed that into like a keyboard line and that's how they use that so i recorded to live strings honestly that's how i did it so when they did that and i recorded to live strings and we did that at the armory uh i did it in the main room and because the main room is like a big looks like a inside of a church and lowered the lights had candles and just me by myself and it was it was uh it was a moment it was a real moment Oh, yeah, you built a whole vibe. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's what music is. It's a vibe. you got to create a vibe, and you have to have a vibe to really help tell your story. And that's what that's about. And with Timelessness, famously, supposedly, you reached out to Sarah McLaughlin to... I didn't. Reese did. <laughs> oh, yeah, I... I... I called her up. On my, she's in my Rolodex. I thought maybe you sent her a MySpace message. I didn't know. No, I had a role. I didn't even have. That was before MySpace. That was. Uh, <laughs> I know. I'm just. I had. A, I still carried my Rolodex around. <laughs> Do you, and you must be the age where you don't know what a Rolodex is. I know what a Rolodex is. I had one. <laughs> you had to turn it. I had my little three by five cards. I would carry that on tour with me. Wow. Well, I don't know if I ever made mine mobile, but I definitely had them because I would reach out to my relatives on my birthday and make sure they knew to send me oh some Oh my gosh. Cash. That's a great band name. Mobile Rolodex. <laughs> All right. I'm writing it down. I got a whole list of band names and that's a new one. Reese reaches out to Sarah McLaughlin. Were you aware? I mean, I assume you were aware of who she was at the time. She had the oh yeah, building a mystery song and stuff like that. Did you think that was a good fit? Was there a idea you had for collaboration on that song? Like, did you hear a female vocal on it or anything like that? I did. I honestly, Reese, like, we could get Sarah McLaughlin to do backup. And it's like, oh, yeah, if you can get her, I mean, sure, why not? Obviously, it never transpired. But uh, I don't know. It would have been cool, I guess. I've never, I never had uh, like a duet on a Fear Factory record until Digimortal. (laughs) <laughs> and what a duet that is. From the wasteland, cold field, under my waistband, tested its time, enemy lines, drawn in the middle of the streets, the concrete stained with blood, I still got to eat. When I hit the street, I made the man understand, I fought with flesh and I bled like a man, I rolled back in the dark as my friend, stood up to the enemy so not to begin. Be real, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but now I, I um, totally forgot about it. Sarah, we reached out to Sarah McLaughlin. I don't think she, I think she was just not available, honestly, at the point. Do you think Reese deliberately sabotaged it since he immediately had that Delirium song come out right after uh, Obsolete? 
No, but he definitely kept in contact with her. <laughs> um, so around this time, you know, this is 98, 99, you are guest vocal superstar, all right? You're on the Soulfly record. You're on yeah. the Spineshank record. You're on the Kilgore record. Oh, yeah. I was doing a lot of that. Spineshank and Kilgore, you guys are touring with them around the same time, too. So is that how those came to be? You were playing shows and they were like, oh, it'd be cool if if you were on? Uh, Spine, we were friends with Spineshank already because they're local. They were an L.A. band and they got signed to Roadrunner. Uh, and, you know, Johnny Santos says, said, hey, you want to come in? I'm like, sure. Uh, Kilgore. Um, yeah, we were touring. We had toured with them with Slayer. And uh, we befriended Jay and Michael and Marty, who's now with Lita Ford. They just kept in contact with me. And when they were recording in L.A. and asked if I could come down, it's like, hell yeah. So that was that TK421, which was a Star Wars reference. And so I was like, sure, why not? That's cool. (laughs) (laughs) That's what won you over? Now, at this time, too. Marty's about to do Methods of Mayhem. Did Tommy Lee ever call you up and say, hey, I need some Burt on the on the rap rock track? No, but that would have been fun. That would have been that record is sick. <laughs> I I would have loved to have met Tommy Lee. That's that's one band I've never never met anyone. And actually, no, I've never met anyone, Molly Crew. Not even John Five? I've never met John Five. Now you do tour with Rob Zombie though for this record. Of course, it predates John Five, but the Rob no. Zombie Monster Magnet Fear Factory tour was that? No, that was the first tour for Obs- that was the first tour for Obsolete, I believe, and uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, it started in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I was stoked because one, you know, I was a fan of White Zombie. Uh, Rob Zombie's new record was blown and started to blow up, and started blowing up. It was on that tour that he was on the cover of Rolling Stone, I believe. And I was a huge fan of Monster Magnet already. Uh, I wore, you know, even before I was in Fear Factory, I was a huge fan of Monster Magnet. So touring with them was just, woo! <laughs> I get to meet Dave Windorf again. Awesome, but uh, it was cool. And uh, he would he would he would play songs just for me, like I'll oh, play this song. And so he, I, I asked him to play a song off of uh, Spine of God that they never. Would play and so I'd say, go, this one goes out to Bert. I'm like, yes. So I would pretty much watch him from the side of stage almost every day. You do end up on the Soulfly song, Eye for an Eye. Eye for an Eye for an Eye. Yeah. That's all I, that's all they wanted me to do. Um, I got to do that because um, what's his name was their producer, Ross Robinson. Right. Now, famously, up until that point, you guys kind of had like a tense relationship with Ross Robinson because of that first record. So how did that come to be where he was like, oh, you know what? Everything actually is cool. Or how how did you decide everything was cool? I guess is a better question. Well, I did it for Max and Sepultura. I didn't do it for Ross. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> and, I'm, st- you know, honestly, I mean, water under the bridge, but. Ross did a couple. Ross did a dirty on us after that too. So, still not pleased with it. <laughs> but song is iconic. They still play it every night. Soulfly still plays it every night. I mean, it's probably their most. Uh, popular oh, it's song. great. Well, it's off their biggest record. 
Max uh, said in some interview not long ago that he loves it because it's like one string. It's just like a caveman song. Like you could just not oh, know. Absolutely. I mean, and he already has, he only has four strings on the guitar to begin with. <laughs> right. So since uh, Reese and Greg, you know, essentially produced and mixed the record, the two records before that were with Colin. Is there anything that you feel like Colin brought to those other records that was missing from Obsolete that you've not even necessarily in a, in a good way, but is there something you think Colin would have done differently since that's who you had worked with up until that point? Well, uh, Colin is a great producer and he, he, he gets a great performance. He gets great. He captures great performances. He's very positive. Um, and he, uh, you know, but he's, his production style was a little too raw, but he gets great performances and that's his specialty. Said, uh, at, but there was a you know things happened between D manufacturer and obsolete, so Colin had nothing to do with us at that point. <laughs> okay, <laughs> was there another producer that you had in mind that you wanted to reach out to because you really don't you work with anybody for a pretty long gap of time, other than not to say that working with Reese isn't working with anybody, but you know, an outside influence? No, no, I think we knew we were going with Reese and Greg from the very beginning. It wasn't until the record, it wasn't until Digimortal that they were looking, Roadrunner was like looking for other uh, producers to step up the game. We reached out to, Rock, what's, it, what's his name? Bob Rock, one of them. Wow, that would have been uh, crazy. Bob Rock producing Fear Factor. Yeah, obviously he turned that down. Um, Fleming Rasmussen was someone I wanted to use. Um, Trevor Horn. I don't think we ever contacted him, but that was a dream producer I wanted to work with. Uh, but um, yeah, it was Reese and Greg from the very beginning for obsolete. And uh, Reese was pretty much with us, you know, a lot while we were writing, he would get, you know, the really poorly recorded demos. So he understood what was going on. He'd, he'd come to the studio from time to time and hear what we're doing and, you know, give suggestions and, arrangements and whatever so it was uh it was recent greg from the very beginning looking back on it now it's been 25 years i think it's perfect in every way you said mean things about the title track that i don't appreciate is there anything that you would have done differently on the album knowing what you know now and what the experience you had since it well you brought up a good point um i would have led with a different single but you know it transpired the way it did and it all worked out anyway. Cars, you know, that that record is kind of defined by cars to a lot of people. And that's great because it's a iconic track that uh we just made it our own, really. And but what would I change? Hmm. I don't know. It was all, you know, that was it was the last analog record we did. It's pre-digital. And uh, even the only digital things that was there was like Reese's synths and, and sounds that he's creating in his little room. That was, it was to the right of the control room. My vocal booth was to the left. And then it was the main room. So Reese had his whole like system uh, set up, you know, racks of just instruments and just racks of keyboards and things that he would plug in, looked like an operator's, old operator station. But uh, it was cool. No, I don't think I would change anything, really. Well, me neither. So I'm glad that's what you said. It's perfect in every way. 
I'm very proud of that album, obviously, for many reasons. It is a literal time capsule of Fear Factory at that moment, um, from lyrically to production. It's and visuals. It's it's a great time period, great time capsule, really. With how oh. much you wrote for this record, and, you know, lyric wise, and you're saying that it got edited down. You know, one of my favorite lyrics on this record in in Fear Factory and in, in Life is on Resurrection. You say that you had to remove your skin to see belief in their eyes. Hard yes. as hell. Hard as hell. Do you have any favorite lines or anything like that that uh, are on this record that really stick out? That when you wrote it, you were like, "Oh, that's sick." Timelessness thing is, is one of my lyrically is a beautiful song. Uh, it's very personal for me. So I write lyrics very personal, but to uh, transpose them into a third person kind of idea for the concept, and it was about a breakup. Really, it was a bad breakup. <laughs> so it was intense. I was really feeling that one. That one. So after singing that song, it helped me move on. So it was very cathartic for me. That's probably my favorite song on the record. You mentioned that Roadrunner had all these expectations and and uh, and faith in you, and of course you fulfilled them. You get this gold record, and it's very exciting. Do you think that the gold record changed the band? whether it be the personalities in it or the perception of it from the label going forward, that whether it reflects on Digimortal having even more pressure on it or just pressure oh, yes. internally or anything like that? All of the above. And uh, it, it, it definitely, it was a, a catalyst for the end, honestly, from, from, from interrelationships of the band to, the relationship with the label, management, everything. The expectations were so high that they were literally trying to change the band into something else to follow a market that one, I believe that Fear Factory helped create, but it was a market that we didn't have to sound like because we already had our own sound. So when we were do, like doing Digimortal, obviously new metal bands were becoming the thing. So that's what Roadrunner wanted us to sound like. And you don't think you already sounded like a new metal band on Obsolete? I didn't. Well, new metal didn't exist. Wait, the term didn't. That's true. But the well, bands that were a part of that scene did. Um, no, I don't think we were that style at all. I think, you know, the songs like Edge Crusher and uh, like Descent were had that vibe because we were already, in, we were, you know, I'm a hip hop fan, classic hip hop. Yeah, uh, I mean, you, you just know. told me you got the, the chorus from Bone Thugs. Bone Thugs and Harmony. You know, I was a fan. I love Cypress Hill at that point. I love, you know, Ice Cube uh, and Public Enemy and obviously Bone Thugs and Harmony. And there's a lot going on in the hip hop world. So, and, you know, by, you know, bands like, we toured with the Sick of All Biohazard. Biohazard was already putting that into that vibe into their music as well. So we we were just like, yeah, it was a little nod to uh, tip of the hat to a, a genre that we all appreciate. And so and put it into our music. What is your favorite thing about Obsolete? What's something that you look back on with most fondness as far as this record goes? 
the touring cycle. I mean, recording was fun. I mean, the whole process was a real growing experience. We, we did a lot of cool stuff. I did a lot of cool stuff, you know, from even while we were in Vancouver, I was having a blast. Um, we were recording, um, but I was snowboarding almost every morning. Uh, our, our, the condo we were staying in was literally 20 minutes away from Cypress Bowl, which is the local uh, ski ski slopes outside of Vancouver. It took me 20 minutes to go up the hill. I was on the ski lift in 30 minutes. So I would go go for a couple hours every morning, and then I would walk to the studio because I'd walk over the bridge and walk to the studio. So it was a lot of fun. Um, the The whole experience of recording at Mushroom Studios is very, very uh, classic place. It was a very historical studio. The Armory, which is owned, which is owned by uh, Bruce Fairburn, great producer, did Rat and Aerosmith and you know all you know, a lot of eighties bands. Were <laughs> um, those were recorded there? So that was a great place. Um, but. The touring was a lot of fun. We toured with some great bands. But you asked me the question, what was my favorite thing? And the one, there was one moment that really popped into my head, first thing. And we were at the height of, uh, Fear Fighters at the height of our, of our moment. We, that's, it was the night we received our gold records. We were headlining the Roseland in New York City. Doesn't exist anymore, but it was in Midtown. Uh, headlining the Roseland holds like held like three thousand people, and we're going up on stage. Right, the, the intro music's going on, going up on stage. Raymond's on stage, Dino's on stage. I walk on stage, and I look at the crowd, and the crowd's just like going insane. Right, and it all hit me. It's like over this overwhelming moment for me. It's like holy fuck. I'm in New York city selling out this fucking awesome place and the crowd's losing it. And we're about, we're just going, it's the intro to shock. It's coming in. And that moment I was like, so overwhelmed. I had to turn around face Raymond and just like get on my knees. Like I had to like grasp my composure. Get it. It's like, I was about to lose it. Like I was going to like fall. Like, I was, I was about to ball in happiness. Like, I was crying happiness. Like, holy fuck, it's amazing. So I had to turn around, grab my composure, and just looked around and, like, shock. There was, was, there was that moment. It all hit me like a, like a ton of bricks. And that is our show. Thank you so much to Burton for joining us, and thank you for listening. You can check out Burton's cover of Rammstein's classic track, Du Hast, as heard in the movie How High, starring Red Man and Method Man. Remember that? Their roommate? He listens to it? Uh, That's available now, and he has original music coming soon, so please keep an eye out for that, as well as his Ascension of the Watchers project, which is available along with everything BCB at www.burtoncbell.com. 
unless you want to hit him with a MySpace message. Also, by the way, the movie that he was referring to that has the Smasher Devourer character is A Wind of Amnesia, which is available for free on YouTube.com. It's about an hour and a half long, and uh, it's pretty sick. And I mean both a nauseating and cool. But in the meantime, my name is Ryan Rainbow, also nauseating and cool. This is Meet Meep, and yes, that's the best that I could come up with. Bye!